0: Welcome to the Billionaire Slap Fight episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of a packed week in business and finance. I am Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Stacey Marie Ishmael of Bloomberg. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of Fundrise. Hi. Hello. Uh, oh my God, how much do we have to talk about today? We so have much. So much. We have Elon Musk. We have Rivian. We have IPOs. We have capital gains taxes. We have inflation. We have people quitting their jobs. We have Johnson and Johnson. We have General Electric. We have the end of the conglomerate. We have so much that we had to take the whole bit about people going off the record and put it into Slate Plus. It is a jam-packed show. Um, We are going to somehow manage to squeeze Imogen Heap into there. Everything is in here. NFTs, you name it, crypto. Stay tuned because this is the plus ultra of slate monies. It's all coming up after this. 18 plus. I'm going to start with deconglomeratization, Emily.
1: All right, very cool, very sexy.
0: It's a it's a cool and sexy word, but there are two of the biggest and most storied companies in America. If you grew up in, you know, when I grew up in financial journalism in like the the 90s and 2000s, and you had the Dow 30, and it was all about these big blue chip stocks that. There is nothing more blue chip than General Electric and Johnson & Johnson. These these are the, the bluest of the blue chips. And they both do a huge number of different things. And both of them this week have announced that they are splitting up and becoming multiple different companies. So Johnson Johnson is splitting into two. It's got the healthcare business, and it's going to also split into its consumer business, General Electric is splitting into three. It, too, has a healthcare business. It's also going to create a power business, which is basically lots of turbines. And then it's also going to do its jet engine business. This is the end of GE, basically. GE is just basically not going to really exist um, in any kind of recognizable form after this. And honestly, I kind of think it's the end of Johnson & Johnson as well. Um, You know, this idea that you can bring together companies in so many disparate industries and do a whole bunch of M&A and create this sort of world-spanning giant, um, seems to be on the outs. It's almost impossible to think of basically any company in America that does that anymore, with the possible exception of Berkshire Hathaway, which is kind of its own sort of unique What about 3M? Yeah, I feel like, yeah, maybe 3M. I mean... I feel, but again, like I feel, like it's only a matter of time until 3M just kind of gets bought up by some massive private equity fund and spun out into a hundred different businesses. You know, like the um, the driving idea behind GE was always that there wasn't really any synergy between these businesses, but that what GE had was incredible management chops, right? And it had these in- amazing managers who were go to management school in, in like upstate New York. And once you were trained as a GE manager, you could manage anything. And then suddenly you got parachuted into some business. And like, because you were a GE manager, it would make lots of money. And, um, and two things happened. Like one of those things was that the, it turned out that the GE managers weren't very good after all, and they would do dumb things like buy Alstom, which was this French power company that was worth like a negative amount of money and spend like $20 billion on it. um, but the other thing that happened was that the sort of central core of g e the sort of coordinating function in upstate New York that didn't really create anything and had no revenues but was was you know the place where managers learned how to manage and that kind of thing just became bigger and bigger and bigger over time to the point at which it just became this massive like cost center, and now they've realized like there's no point in having that and we're just going to lose it.
1: It was unmanageable, as it were. Wow. Sorry.
0: Big companies are often <laughs> unmanageable, right? So like, so like, Facebook is unmanageable, but like the reason why Facebook is valuable has nothing to do with the quality of its managers. Whereas like the, the reason why GE was like so profitable for a long time, according to GE, was the quality of its managers. In fact, it was all financial engineering, which came unstuck during the financial crisis, but that's a different story.
1: I, I was wanting to ask you two, I mean, what is the reason, is there a reason more broadly that these kinds of organizations, conglomerates have fallen out of favor? Is there like a trend here something to watch? I know that in these times, in 2021, managers have actually fallen out of favor. Like companies want to be lean Ooh, and they want to be flash Shots fired. I mean, it's true, right? I mean... It, it's not what it used to be, to be manager. There's fewer managers now than there used to be, I believe, um, if you Stacey, read, like, Harvard like, Business Review.
0: Right, Stacey, think of a company which is famous for having really good management.
2: Well, as you say, that was the claim to fame of GE. It's I can't think of a single tech company when, in which anybody would be like, and you know what, the reason to work there... <laughs> <laughs> Is You will be managed like you've never been managed before. Right,
0: like Steve Barmer was famously, you know, was a terrible manager. Like Bill Gates was a terrible manager. Mark Zuckerberg is a terrible manager. Steve Jobs was a terrible manager. I think Tim Cook gets, you know, credit for being a decent manager. But like in general... He's an incredible
2: operator. That's right. that's for sure. And it's it's weird because I was having a... I was having breakfast with a source this morning and they're trying to hire up. And one of the things that they were saying is they treat hiring like execution. That one of the most important things that they assess whether somebody can execute is how well they hire and how well they can manage. And I just feel like it's such a refreshing slash old school perspective on on so many of what we're dealing with these days. It seems really like something that's fallen out of favor, partly because most people aren't good at it.
0: Right. And even the people who are good at it Aren't sort of going out and trying to boast about how good they are at it?
2: Right. Exactly. It's not like invest in us because we're amazing. Well, it's invest in us because we're amazing, not invest in us because our managers get shining reviews from their direct reports. Right. That
0: they're, they're investing in us because we've done the pizza teal thing of creating a monopoly, and uh, rather than invest in us because we are just really good at making widgets.
1: And is there something else going on where conglomerates used to make sense and now they don't make sense? It, in, in other words, it used to make sense for one company to do a bajillion different things, and now it doesn't. And and is there a reason for that? Or is this just one of those things that?
0: Yeah, I have a theory about this. And and my theory is that this is kind of related to the move away from dividends and towards stock buybacks, which is the big blue chip companies like J&J or GE always used to and still Do really to this day take great pride in maintaining their dividend and they would pay like a reasonably hefty dividend every quarter and the stock traded on some level on a multiple of dividends right like you had you had a dividend yield i can't remember the last time i heard anyone talk like seriously about a dividend yield but like this was the case definitely in the 70s in the sort of heyday of the conglomerate that individuals would go out and they would buy their thousand dollars of ge stock or whatever and then they would get dividend checks every quarter and they would live on those dividend checks that was that checks that was the income they were getting from their stocks that you know they were income stocks and in a world where maintaining a dividend is incredibly important having a diversified group of businesses is incredibly valuable because if one business does badly in a quarter then that's fine another business can do well and pick up the slack and so you get like natural diversification within the business nowadays everyone gets their bit diversification by buying an s&p 500 index fund and companies have basically stopped paying dividends or if they do pay dividends it's like special dividends and the 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 fetishization of like we will pay this great dividend every quarter while it still exists is much less of a big deal than it ever used to be and the main way that companies return money to shareholders is not by dividends anymore but rather by stock buybacks which happen in a very lumpy way and everyone expects them to be lumpy so you don't need that diversification and evenness anymore
2: it like feels to me very related to that era of management which is what a wild economy to live in in which you're like i hold ge therefore i'm good <laughs> because i'm going to live off dividend income it's just it's it's such a novel this is like me elder millennial ca- can't wrap my brain about this previous way in which people survived problem but yeah truly truly a comment on the financialization the internetization and just the like the dramatic shifts in in income distribution and wealth and how people get and don't get it that we that we continue to see yeah and
1: ge also just it, it's at home right now we're watching 30 rock and i don't know if you guys remember 30 oh, rock wow. but the alec baldwin character is meant to be this ge executive and he's hilarious and worships jack welch and it's a total send up of that culture and i feel like and his name is jack yeah <laughs> it's it's (laughs) jack donaghy i actually
0: jack jack donaghy is the vice president of east coast television and microwave oven programming yep (laughs) which which is a total ge joke because ge made microwave ovens and television like he like you know it owned 30 rock right it owned nbc NBC.
1: yes exactly which now seems kind of absurd i guess but at the time (laughs) kind of made sense people that's that's just what, That's you, what do. you do. You buy, you buy NBC. You're the phone company, you buy HuffPost. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Levine also pointed out that um investment bankers really did quite well thanks to GE's need to make deals.
0: Buying like, and selling. Because yes. <laughs> yeah, GE has been selling for a while, buying buying all like, yeah, seven billion dollars or something is the total amount of money that GE has paid in fees over the past 20 years, just buying and selling companies. You know. Like, seven billion dollars like even by ge standards is quite a lot of money money.
1: yeah i mean what management prowess to give a bunch of money to a bunch of bankers i don't i don't know i think the emperor had no clothes there
2: i mean if if you were the person buying infinity expensive watches on the other end of this i feel like you your clothes are probably pretty good (laughs) (laughs) the emperor has a lot of clothes and a big
3: big
1: closet
2: a lot of clothes (laughs) in a summer house (laughs)
0: Meanwhile, the J&J announcement is interesting. They claim this has nothing to do with their Texas two-step bankruptcy, and um, and I am not sure I believe them. Um, I don't
2: believe them at all.
0: So um, what they have said is they're basically willing to take all of the assets, or up to all of the assets of the consumer business, and use those assets to settle the claims of people who... Claim that they got cancer from using J and J baby powder, and spinning off the consumer arm into an entirely separate company makes it that much more difficult for the rest of J and J, like the really valuable bit of J and J, the pharmaceutical bit of J and J, to um, to be held liable for any of that.
2: Well, I mean, they they specifically said they're insisting that these things are unrelated. And I'm sure that there is a way they're going to convince various investors and themselves that this is true. But the the timing is really interesting. Cause, you know, I think to the point that Emily was making zero and then two <laughs> in 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 a matter of a week, like what is what are the underlying things that are really driving this? Oh yeah, we don't want to be a big conglomerates anymore.
0: So yeah, this is my my big question is is given this long-running trend which has been going on for decades there aren't that many conglomerates anymore is there any way the Berkshire Hathaway stays together after Warren Buffett dies it will clearly stay together until he dies he's not going to be the one to break it apart
1: I mean I don't I don't think it stays together and what we've seen and correct me if I don't have these numbers right but (laughs) I don't have a number here And what we've seen is when companies conglomerates break up, their pieces are more valuable. They become more valuable companies separate than together. Is that not true?
0: Um, Yes, sometimes. Sometimes not. It's like it's in general. The conventional wisdom is that mergers destroy value and demergers create value, Um, but that's not always true.
1: All I can think of is eBay, PayPal, which I'm sure is not the best example of. of, But that is
0: a good example
1: because PayPal is much more valuable without eBay. Yeah, way dragging more it valuable down. than mm-hmm.
0: than eBay ever was. Yeah.
1: So by that logic, why wouldn't why would Berkshire Hathaway stay together? Um Warren Buffett obviously provides value like inherently to that company. Like there's probably some kind of premium there because he's he's basically like a I don't know, people worship that guy, right? So
0: well, no, he gets he gets deal flow, right? So, like, you know, in the financial crisis, when someone needs emergency money, um, they really want that emergency money from Warren Buffett because it's like Warren's vote of confidence. But once Warren's not there, then that extra value you get from having Warren's vote of confidence evaporates.
1: There you go. He's the brand holding the whole thing together. And without him, it's got to,
2: I, I would bet that it breaks up. Perhaps he's also a good manager. Who knows? <laughs>
1: Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the Slow Newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced.
0: I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, at my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe.
2: And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the Slow Newscast
0: wherever you get your podcasts. Emily, tell me about Worker Revenge.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay, so Felix and Stacey, I wrote about this for a fortune in my newsletter there this week. Um, Her excellent newsletter. Love that. Um, yeah, retail and fast food workers, low-wage workers are essentially, they actually have some leverage right now because they companies cannot hire and find enough of them. And I've been noticing these stories cropping up and like, you just truly love to see it. So there's a great story in the Washington Post of these workers at a McDonald's in Bradford, Pennsylvania, where they're making like $9.25 an hour. And, you know, they just want to make a little bit more money. Their managers won't won't give them raises. So they all walked out together um, and they put up a sign. They, they closed the store down, walked out, put up a sign that's like, due to lack of pay, we all quit. And then they went and found new jobs. And this is like happening across the country. There are like literal signs popping up in places saying like you know we we all we all quit, we're not getting paid enough. Um, and at the same time, we're reading stories about um, retailers really scrambling to hire, offering huge bonuses, hiring bonuses at Amazon, at Macy's, as we're especially as we're heading into the holiday season. It
2: just seems like... the, Or even changing requirements, right? Saying, actually, we're not going to ask for a completely useless degree, mm-hmm. or we're not going to do drug tests, or we're not going to require a driver's license. Like that, all of, you know, various of the things that have been like accoutrement of hiring in the US are just falling by the wayside as people like, what if we just had people working instead of jumping through arbitrary hoops?
0: So to, you know, bring it round to the other big news of the week, what's happening is these People are going off to find higher-paying jobs. The employers are paying them more money. And they've realized that prices aren't as sticky as they used to be. And so if you're paying your labor force more money, you can actually do that and maintain your margins by the simple expedient of just raising your prices. <laughs> and so this is how you get to 6.2% inflation.
1: And that's the big news of the week that I suppose we should we should get In, into. Inflation...
0: Inflation is big, it is real, it is 6.2%. We can argue is it about transitory? How, whether or not it is transitory or even what transitory means. I think most people have given up on even trying to unpack the meaning of that word. But it is definitely become a major political football at this point. And it is something that people really hate. And one of the things that fascinates me is that even if you have way more money than the increase in prices. So, you know, if the amount of money you have to spend every week goes up by, like, $75 because, you know, the grocery bill goes up and the gas bill goes up and the restaurant check goes up and everything else, and meanwhile you have, like, $300 extra in child support and a bunch of extra money in wages because you got a raise, because you quit and got a better-paying job, you know, and you can more than cover the rising prices you still feel really bad about inflation you still think inflation is a bad thing and that dynamic where especially among like the bottom two quintiles of the income distribution where we've seen very very large increases in both wages and wealth they are still deeply unhappy about inflation and so like this is a real problem politically Um, but yeah, it's no one is coming out and saying, or very few people are coming out and saying this kind of inflation is great because it's just what happens when people pay me more.
1: First, I wanted to say that I feel like for months people have been talking about inflation. Republicans especially have been saying it's, it's here and it's really terrible and blah, blah, blah. And there's been so much pushback from economists and like econ Twitter being like, no, no, nothing to worry about just transitory. And I feel like when this number came out this week, that officially ended that kind of no, no, don't worry about it kind of rhetoric. Like no one is saying that anymore. That's over. I I think what you're seeing now is a little bit of consensus that, OK, inflation is happening and it's happening a lot more than we thought. And we actually don't really understand what it's like to live with inflation because it. The last time it happened. Hasn't like, <laughs> been true for such a long time. Yeah, like the last time it was in the 70s. I read a, something today or yesterday that was like, don't compare this inflation to the 70s, compare it to post-World War II. And I was like, oh my God, we're really like swimming in uncharted waters right now. I, I feel like anyone who tells you they know exactly what's going on with inflation and with the economy is, they don't, I don't think. I think this is something yeah. new.
0: But the 70s are really important because, um, and it's not just because... This is a country run by septuagenarians, you know who who do who do remember the seventies. But it's also because the seventies were the point, were the one point at which inflation was a genuinely damaging economic force. Inflation, in general, is not hugely damaging right like it there aren't that many people who just have massive savings accounts or checking accounts or cash under their mattress or whatever which just gets like eroded away in in value but in the 70s what you got was this self-fulfilling inflation right you had this what's known as an inflationary spiral where workers demanded wages not so much to make up for the degree to which prices had gone up, but to make up for the degree to which prices were inevitably going to go up in the future. And that people started right raising their prices because they knew that, you know, consumer prices would get raised because the manufacturers knew that producer prices, the amount that they needed to pay to their suppliers, were going to go up in the future. That people looked out a year and ahead saw like the inevitability of inflation inevitability, yeah. and raised yeah. prices today as a result of future inflation. And that inflationary spiral where like it becomes very self-fulfilling was a real problem in the 1970s and 100% does not exist right now. And it really didn't ever exist before the 1970s either. It was this very peculiar um, thing that started with like the oil shock and, and, But one of the problems is that whenever inflation looks like it's spiking, and especially right now, the fears of inflation feel much more real because of the risk that that inflationary spiral might emerge. And I have to say that for the time being, at least I'm pretty sanguine about this. I don't think that inflationary spiral is going to emerge. But it does explain why people get so scared about it.
1: Okay. And I think that fear, one of the consequences is probably going to be the Biden administration's Build Back Better bill, which is the $1.97 trillion bill that has a lot of policies in it to combat climate change, free universal pre-K, all this stuff. I think there's a fear now that if they spend, if that bill gets passed and they spend that money, it's going to be too stimulative and it's going to make inflation worse, which probably isn't, true but the fear of that happening spread out
0: over many years 10 years yeah so it's not not like they're just dumping 1.7 trillion dollars into the economy tomorrow which really would Mm -hmm. exacerbate inflation Mm -hmm. um the biden administration keeps on um wheeling out this talking point that a bunch of nobel prize-winning economists have said that the build back better bill will be disinflationary which i'm not convinced about that either but yeah, definitely, there's this, you know, there's this feeling that inflation has been caused by fiscal policy being too loose. There's another feeling that it's been caused by monetary policy being too loose. You know, ultimately, the proximate cause we can all agree was, you know, the pandemic, which caused both the fiscal and the monetary policy, and also all of the supply chain disruptions, supply which have, yeah. which have, which have, you know, which are still reverberating and will do for a while. Which
2: is you know, maybe why the post World War analogy is so interesting. Right? right. Because that was also another massively disruptive event societally, economically, infrastructurally, and did come with a bunch of necessary infrastructure upgrades and in to some extent you know, more power back into the labor force than before.
0: Much more power for the the labor force, much more inflation, and good inflation, right? Good inflation that was accompanied by healthy economic growth. And, like, that was, like, pre-70s inflation, where people weren't actually worried about it that much.
2: The trick with inflation is not to worry about it.
0: (laughs) Exactly.
2: (laughs) Sure. The column
1: I read, it was Paul Krugman who was talking about post-World War II inflation and, and one thing you pointed out was there was probably like bad monetary policy reaction to the inflation. But one thing that the federal government still managed to do was build infrastructure, including the the federal highways. Like no one back then was like, if we build the highways, it'll be too stimulative. No, they built the highways and it helped like, un- you know, it helped unlock some like supply chain economic issues more broadly that kind of helped calm things down, actually. So I don't know, maybe that goes towards the Nobel prize-winning economists arguing that it would be disinflationary to do more stuff
0: the the one thing which is very new about 2020s inflation which definitely didn't exist in the 50s or even in the 70s is that in the 50s and the 70s you did not have crypto bros (laughs) and you did have gold bugs though and the crypto bros are they cannot stop talking about inflation like jack dorsey is out there on twitter like going hyperinflation look it's here inflation and and suddenly they've all rediscovered satoshi nakamoto 1.0 you know satoshi nakamoto 1.0 where where he's like fiat currency is bad because it gets inflated away and we need to replace it with something digitally perfect and i i kind of briefly thought that we would sort of moved on from that and now now everyone's like into smart contracts and you know DeFi and all of this kind of stuff but no apparently there's still this this very like strong bitcoin maximalist strain of um you know anti-fiat we need a whole new currency thing which will not go away and is i think Stacey, correct me if i'm wrong about this but like is having an effect on the discourse more broadly?
2: It's certainly having an effect on the discourse. And I want to, I was just looking up to make sure I got this correctly. So John Authors, who's a colleague here at Bloomberg and is not a crypto bro in the slightest, did a very interesting chart. You know, we love a good chart showing that I'll read it out loud. Over the last 10 years, the headline CPI has risen 28%, which to the point is like a very low number over the course of 10 years. But if you had denominated that index in Bitcoin, you would have had deflation of 99.996%.
0: And deflation is terrible. The, the one thing we can all agree <laughs> on is the deflation is much, much, much worse than inflation.
2: I don't think I understand that stat. Well, essentially what they're saying is the other sentence is if it what cost you one bitcoin at current prices 10 years ago would now cost 0. 0.0004 satoshis oh, right like you, now I understand. <laughs> you you would be in you would not be worrying about how am i going to pay for milk <laughs> um if if you, if all of your holdings were in bitcoin and this is this is very much too I can't believe I'm going to say the sentence to the to the Bitcoin maximalist. Credit is very much one of the biggest underlying premises of Bitcoin. That if you are worried about inflation, this is an asset that you should hold.
0: But but no but yeah no, but no. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> but no. Can I just say Felix but refuses. no a lot of times because <laughs> uh, I need to stop being angry and st- start trying to speak in full sentences. All right, assets that. Our inflation hedges are all well and good. And we can all talk about like, is gold an inflation head? Our equity is an inflation head? It's a hedge. Is Bitcoin an inflation hedge? Like, if you're worried about inflation, I mean, you know, can I just go out and buy tips? Inflation index, treasury bonds. There are various different ways you can hedge against inflation. And if you know the bitcoin people reckon that they found some clever asset class that hedges against inflation like all power to them they can go out and buy that asset class and it goes up when there isn't inflation and it goes up when there is inflation and it goes down in both situations as well and it's just like very volatile as a currency however the last thing you want as a currency is anything disinflationary if you have deflation in a currency that is terrible. If the price of everything is going down, if especially if it's going down fast, but even if it's going down slowly, that is terrible because it is this constant, significant incentive to not buy anything because it is going to be cheaper tomorrow. And so no one buys anything. It's incredibly bad for growth. You need a little bit of inflation in order to keep growth going. If you have deflation, then the economy just kind of Grind slowly to a halt because no one wants to buy anything ever because it's just they'd be better off just waiting for it to get cheaper.
1: Is that really how people yeah. think? Th- like, why do people buy stuff before Christmas? Then you know it's going to be cheaper after. Like, well, people that's still buy stuff because they need stuff. to
0: give Christmas presents.
1: Yeah, and you need to buy milk. <laughs> I mean. I I'm sure you're right, Felix. Whatever, but like people buy stuff for all kinds of wild reasons, and they're not always going to do the logical thing. Like I'm just logically going to sit and not buy a, something. No, so no, okay. That the price but is like, going down.
0: let me give you a real example, which is used cars. Right, everyone knows that we have like a very artificial situation right now going on in the used car market. The used cars are crazy high. They're Certainly going to come down in price in the future. And if you ask anyone who knows anything about cars, should I buy a car right now? They are all going to give you the same answer, which is no, you should not buy a car right now. You should wait for prices to come down. If you know that prices are going to go down in the future, and if you have the ability to wait, then you wait. And that's what everyone in the car market is doing, but that's broadly what everyone in the economy does in a deflationary environment.
1: Okay. But just to ask you one more thing so if there's inflation going on um, and I need to do something with my savings so they're not just it's not just losing value Does it not make sense to just buy some Bitcoin or whatever? Because we know that's gonna the price of that is going to go up lots and lots more than my savings account.
0: There you go. If you know that the price of Bitcoin (laughs) is going to go up lots and lots, then buy Bitcoin. (laughs) Like you know, that's that. But but you do that regardless. But you do that regardless of inflation, right? The price of Bitcoin has gone up lots and lots over a decade in which there was no inflation, and it may or may not go up lots and lots in a decade when there is high inflation, or there may not be high inflation. But like. There is no correlation between Bitcoin and inflation.
2: Right. Okay. Yeah. There are there are definitely spikes. I mean, the, the the one of the teams at Bloomberg Economics, I think they were they were saying something like 50% of Bloomberg's recent of uh, of Bitcoin's recent appreciation has to do with the in, the in, the inflation hedge dynamic. Um and then, of course, there are other analysts who are like, "No." <laughs> so that's that's what's fun about markets—you can find any explanation for anything that you're looking for at any time. I mean,
1: it would make sense that people are trying to put their money places where they can still make a nice, make good interest rates and stuff, right?
0: I had a I had a poll. I did a little poll on Twitter. Um, I'm going to ask you two what you think the answer is, and then I'm going to say what like the Twitter hive mind said. I said. Inflation is it good for stocks or bad for stocks?
2: Markets don't care. That's my that's my response. <laughs>
0: um. So, um. yeah, Stacy says like basically neither. Um. Emily.
1: Well, I I would want to agree with Stacy, but for the sake of contrarianism, you, I'll say it's good. <laughs> it's good for stocks because you want to put you'll put your money there.
0: You are you are in the majority. We had two thirds saying it was bullish to only one third saying it was bearish. I think i'm i'm with you i'm in the majority if inflation is you know allowing you to raise prices and keep margins high um and like you're just selling goods for whatever they cost in real terms which is what companies do if those real terms are going up in nominal terms then you have that lovely little sort of tailwind in terms of increasing your profits and cash flows and everything and i think it's good for companies the argument that it's bad for companies is you know it basically relies on the central bank reaction function it's like well the fed is going to have to raise interest rates and if interest rates go up then discount rates go up and if discount rates go up then the net present value of future cash flows goes down and so that yeah, blah, 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 like there is an argument that inflation is bad for stocks but i think probably the the wise mind here as ever is is stacy is
2: I mean, basically, Elon Musk asked the internet if he should sell a bunch of his Tesla shares.
0: 10% of his Tesla shares.
2: Indeed. And he's like, and I will abide by the results of this Twitter poll. Then Twitter was like, bring it on. And they were like, yes, Elon Musk, you should sell (laughs) 10% of your shares. And lo and behold, Elon Musk has sold a bunch of shares.
1: Should I read it aloud? Yes, please read it aloud. Okay. Much is made lately of unrealized gains being a means of tax avoidance. So... I propose selling 10% of my Tesla stock. Do you support this? So he makes it into this thing about um, billionaire taxes. And and then, yes, 50, 58% of his followers do support him selling his stock.
2: 58% of people who voted in the poll, because you don't have to, right, be a sorry, to right. vote yes, in the poll. Right. I'm sorry. You're right. Yes. 58% of people bored enough to vote in his poll.
0: Whereas the, the overwhelming majority of the replies to the poll came from, like, Elon Musk, Tesla stock-holding fanboys who were like, no, don't do it. It's going to make my stock go down.
1: <laughs> and it did.
0: <laughs> and it, well, I mean, like, the stock is still worth, like, you know, a
1: thousand
0: well dollars, over $1,000 Pretty much. share. I, think, I, I feel like they're all probably fine. Um, there is a conspiracy theory, which I suppose we ought to entertain. Elon Musk knew that he had to sell a bunch of stock anyway for various tax reasons associated with It's not a conspiracy
2: with. theory. That's just that's just like a fact.
0: <laughs> but but no, the conspiracy theory comes in wh- where where like he kind of knew that he was he knew what the result of the poll was going to be and he did the poll to like cover up the fact that he would have to sell the stock because otherwise it would be a bad look to sell stock but now it looks like a good look because he's doing what twitter says and like it just seems way too convoluted and like i don't think he knew what the result was going to be and i think that was just him having like a brainwave on a weekend and he's probably like smoking weed or something
1: yeah elon musk just being elon musk and just having fun and tweeting and even though the tweeting you may have led the stock to drop a little bit and caused Elon Musk to lose like $80 million or something. Um, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. Like, that's just the price Elon Musk is paying to have fun on Twitter. I mean, we're all paying a price too.
2: and when you're when you're the world's richest person, what's $80 million among billionaires? You know, that's <laughs> just like, <laughs> like, eh, lols. <laughs> It's like an expensive dinner. He had to
1: sell the stock, right? Because Or he had stock options that were expiring that he had gotten like 10 years ago. And he had to...
0: Right. He had well, it's, to... it's not clear whether that was the stock that he was talking about selling, right? The new stock that he acquires by exercising his options, that's actually income. That's not, you know, unrealized capital gains. And he needs to pay income tax. And the only way you can ever pay the income tax on that... Well, I mean, most people sell a bunch of the stock they get when they exercise options in order to pay the income tax elon could probably borrow that much money if he needed to because he's elon but you know i think people really did get caught up in unhelpful knots, like talking about that whole aspect of things um but yeah he's gonna he's sold like five billion dollars of shares Um, he's going to sell even more because $5 billion of shares is not even 10% of his holdings because he's that rich. He's going to pay 23% capital gains tax on those sales. And that's going to be a bunch of billions of dollars going to the federal government to spend on infrastructure.
1: And California too. I think um, I saw some estimates. California's getting a large chunk of Elon Musk taxes on this as well. You got it. I mean, twenty twenty
2: two is going to be Texas.
1: Yeah, right?
0: exactly. He's left California. He's moved to Texas. If he does, no the, tax. If he does the options exercising in Texas rather than California, and he's living in Texas, you know, I am not a tax lawyer. I don't know, but like a lot of the talk about his effective tax rate being fifty percent um, or fifty four percent and stuff like that is ba- is predicated on him being a California resident, which he is certainly not anymore.
1: And what is all this? What's my what's the takeaway here for the billionaire tax discourse? What what am I learning? What did I learn from this? I don't know.
0: I, I, I feel like <laughs> if you want to learn about taxes, wealth distribution, capital gains, unrealized, you know, wealth, and all the rest of it, looking at a meme lord a meme lord edge case is just gonna never shed light in any helpful way on anything like Elon is Elon, he's going to Elon and the rest of the discourse can like move on. But like, but yeah, I think there was talk, you know, when there was that like one day long proposal to tax unrealized capital gains that this would affect like 700 people. I think we can talk sensibly about proposals that would affect 700 people. um, But Elon is a very unique one of those 700. And I don't think he, he, necessarily is a great way to sort of shed light on how the other 700 would best be taxed we should also mention though the largest ipo of the decade i mean this is it's amazing how much news there is this week because we had a 14 billion dollar ipo this company rivian no company has raised this much money on the stock market since alibaba went public in 2014 no American company has made, raised this much money on the stock market since Facebook went public in 2012. 14 billion is an insane amount of money to raise in an IPO, and what makes it completely insane is that it has zero revenues.
1: You're talking about this is, a, this
0: is a yeah, this is a pre-revenue company which raised 14 billion dollars. It's worth now it's listed on the market. It's worth about 100 billion on the market. Make sense of this.
2: This is like the Platonic ideal of venture capital.
0: <laughs> it's absolutely it, it is. It's VC gone public markets at a scale that no one could ever dream of. It's absolutely bazonkers. And the only reason I think I'm I feel comfortable saying that the only reason that Rivian is worth hundred billion is like a relative value trade with with Tesla. Right? It's like if Tesla's worth a trillion, then Rivian's probably worth you know zero point one Teslas.
1: So we should say that Rivian is, I think it's a 12-year-old EV electric vehicle company that I think specializes in electric trucks. It has backers like, it has Amazon backing it. And I think the idea ultimately is to build some kind of like electric. And Ford.
0: Ford has a big shareholding.
1: To build some kind of like electric delivery vans, which does have some potential. um, But the, the difference and Dan Premack had a good piece this morning the difference between Rivian and Tesla and why that comparison may not be correct is cuz when Tesla IPO'd it was it was less far less mature than Rivian is right now so it had more like runway to to get big it didn't have as much VC backing like Rivian already had a billion dollar plus valuation um and, you know it was just has more money but it has less to room to grow now because it's so valuable it, it's it's a different situation than tesla and it seems kind of doomed to me actually like you might have made money this week on the ipo but like going forward i don't know where are you but gonna go I, from but
0: here the, well i mean i feel like again we are living in this bizarre world where we're conflating the company and the stock right the rivian has a truck that people are very excited about They have an SUV that they haven't even started making yet, but that people are very excited about. They have a van that Amazon has already committed to buy 100,000 of and will almost certainly buy more than that. They have good design. It's it's real like ground-up EV stuff, and as a business, I think there is a strong reason to believe that Rivian will have a good business, it will be profitable, it will make money and and there is a relatively bright future for Rivian and people are, you're going to see a lot of Rivians on the streets and that's going to be uh, a successful business thing. Yeah. Now, like you know, that is an entirely separate question from like will the stock go up or down. And the stock can go down by 90%, and it's still a $10 billion company, which is like out there making trucks that people like to drive. And so I'd be interested to see if Rivian becomes a really successful company and sells a lot of trucks, and the stock comes down to planet Earth, like would that be considered a success or a, or a failure? Like, are people really these days just judging companies on their share price rather than what they do and how much money they make?
2: Well, we just said that nobody cares about management, Felix. So, <laughs> it's just... I was wondering when
1: Felix was saying that, I was like, that's an oxymoron. You can't be a successful company if your stock price is going down. Like, that's not the story anyone's going to tell about you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good your product is, how many deals you have with Amazon, blah, blah, blah. If the stock's going down, the story about your company is you're a loser. You're you're not doing well. Like, I, I just don't see that happening. Unless it has. I, I can't think of an example.
0: All right folks, this is this is where you write in slatemoney at slate.com and tell us, give us some examples of successful companies that have done very well as their share price was declining. I'm sure there are examples. I just I'm a bit like you. It's like it's not easy to think of that, but I'm sure it's happened.
1: I feel like if Anna was here, um, she'd be like, "You have to have growth. If you don't have growth in the stock price, like what are you doing? What are you doing?"
2: <laughs> so because we started this by talking about Twitter, um, Elon Musk and Michael Burry of the big short fame have been in a sort of a, a billionaire slap fight for a little while. And this one is about Rivian. And so Musk was saying in response to somebody else, I hope they're able to achieve high production and break even cash flow you know, and then he's like, Tesla's the only American car maker to reach high volume production and positive cash flow in the past 100 years. And then Burry is like, mm, the true test is achieving that without massive government and electricity subsidies on the backs of taxpayers who don't own your cars. And you're just like, "Ooh, snap, fair points were made. Um, but to the point that Emily was making earlier about infrastructure, so much of this conversation about Tesla, about Rivian and about the relative antipathy of this phase of the economy to like government subsidy is bizarre to me because government subsidy and infrastructure are things that these companies are not just relying on, but like massively benefiting from to, to get to the scale and the interest and the enthusiasm that they have. Like it wouldn't make sense to bet on electric vehicles if you didn't think that the Biden administration and future ones had some kind of plan to continue subsidizing these sorts of transactions. Um, but anyway, that is, that is my I don't understand how billionaires think digression of the day.
1: The auto industry wouldn't even exist if, like, to go back further, like, we didn't build the highways. <laughs> yeah.
0: Here we are. We three having a numbers round.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to split um, up this conglomerate, folks.
0: We're, no, we're, st- we're, sticking, we're sticking together, people, at least for the time being. My number this week is 3.4%. Which is the new quits rate. A new damn all it, Felix. high in the <laughs> oh, quits rate. Shit. Did I steal your number?
2: God damn it. Fine, I'll find another number. <laughs> Carry on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Always Basically, 3.4% of the entire American workforce. Sorry, that's not true. 3% of the entire American workforce and 3.4% of privately employed Americans quit their jobs in one month. Go just workers, in go. the month <laughs> of... Um, that was, I think that was October or was that September? I can't remember. It's September, right? But yeah, that's an absolutely insane. Like, if you multiply that by 12, you basically get getting on for 40% of the entire workforce just quitting their jobs any given year. So the quits rate is gazonkers.
1: It's 4.4 it really million Americans. The, right 4.4 mm-hmm. 4 million and it's up and down the food chain of workers right cuz it's like those McDonald's workers i was telling you guys about walking out putting up their signs but the bloomberg had a piece about <laughs> finance workers quitting their jobs and getting like eight figure eight salaries figure. <laughs> eight figures i was like what um at, for in their new jobs and 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 it but it's all the same kind of thing it's people that are like there's more opportunities there. I don't have to put up with this crap anymore. And the, the Bloomberg story, it was the bankers that, you know, didn't get any sleep over the past year. And then, you know, the, the McDonald's workers are like, haven't had a raise in forever and ever, and everyone's mean to them. So like, of course, they're going to quit. Like for so long, workers in this country, up and down everywhere have been treated mostly like crap. I think we can all agree. Um, so I just, I love to see it. Quit away, everyone. Keep going.
0: Quit, quit away and go go work in crypto where the salary <laughs> is enormous.
1: Like the mayor of New York, get paid in crypto. Just
0: Emily, what's your what's your number? I'm gonna give. Um, I guess this give Stacy a little bit more time to I find found another back. one. You thanks. found another one. Okay.
1: <laughs> well, I'll go. Okay, so my number is two dollars and ninety nine cents. That is, I think, the monthly fee for Twitter Blue, which is Twitter's new subscription product that I'm weirdly excited about. I don't know what that says about How me. Are you going to
0: pay? I, I was trying I to... Don't, f- I don't understand what you get for it. It's, okay, so... It no ads so weird to me.
1: You get content without ads that you can read, and you get some... Wait, like. Wait, there are no ads games. in the
0: stream? I thought there were ads in the stream still. Do they uh, take out know. the ads?
1: Uh, let's not talk about that. I don't know. Do you know... Stacey, I only know you get some content. It's the only ads it's the right? only
2: thing that would make me pay. No, is if I no longer have rando promoted tweets, but you, in my stream, I would pay two ninety nine a month. For you that. also get, which I think I'm kind of excited about, an undo,
1: an undo button. So, like, you write your tweet, you hit tweet, <laughs> and you have thirty seconds in which you can click undo to take the tweet back. And I feel like I isn't that just the same as that? a
0: delete button?
1: No, delete. You always have. Everyone knows that you deleted, right? Because you click on the old. How link do they for the know? Because you click on the link for the for the tweet, and it says this tweet is. So been what deleted. happens if you
0: click on the link for one that was undone?
1: It's gone, baby. It's gone. It's undone. <laughs> Time has been reversed. And I, I feel like I this would is like not that.
0: worth $36 a year.
1: I think it is. I think also Kara Swisher pointed out like this is just their first try at subscription at a subscription product. Like Amazon Prime in the early days wasn't so great. But now Amazon Prime is like, why would you buy anything on Amazon if you're not a Prime member? I mean, that's just my opinion, but it's true.
0: I my, think it's gonna be my the same favorite, kind of thing. My favorite tweeter is Stacy Marie Ishmael. Stacey, you have a <laughs> you have a little tip jar on your on your Twitter. Has anyone left you a, t- a tip yet?
2: Yeah, well, so I was I was in the beta, and I just I thought I switched that off. Literally, never have I received. It to that point. <laughs> like, you know, I have some amount of followers, and not a single person has ever been moved to be like, "Here's a dollar for your tweet." Your tweets are like, so good, zero. Stacey. This is is an an You've never given me a dollar, Emily. <laughs> 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 so it's okay. I, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate to have a full time job. I'm I'm good. But you know, if I were sort of a creative professional who was like, great, I can, you know, I can try something with tip jars or I can try something with super follows, I would have a lot of questions about what my expected earnings would be on a monthly basis.
0: Um, well, no, you wouldn't really. You'd your expected earnings would be zero. <laughs>
2: You should quit. Indeed, the sustainability, right? Indeed, and get an eight-figure job working on Wall Street. Exactly. Um, eight figures. Ha! Huh. Eight figures. Eight figures is a lot of figures. It's just a lot of figures. I mean, depends on inflation, yeah. right?
0: <laughs> Woo! Well, I mean, if if, if 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 you make if you make like one hundred and thirteen thousand dollars and forty eight cents, that's eight figures.
2: Felix. All right. So my number, <laughs> my number is four which is the number of virtual apes. Yes, yes, stay with me. Are, are they bathing? In,
0: are they bored apes?
2: Uh, three are bored, one's a mutant. Oh, okay. In a super group that's been put together by Universal Music Group, which reps, you know, T-Swift and Drake, among others, into an NFT band called Kingship. And what? I feel like there's 17 different concepts that I have to explain in that sentence right now.
0: But is this, is this the new... Like, I feel like there used to be... A weird, slightly ironic, not really super group called Gorillas, where it was all animated by Jamie someone, and it had like Damon Albarn, and it was like, and I, and it was the first like animated, legitimately good music group, and now we're gonna have NFTs who are correct making the music. But is Damon? Is Damon Alban involved? Like, who's making? Is it Taylor? Tell me, it's Taylor Swift.
2: <laughs> Trust me, I would have led with if it were if it were Taylor Swift. <laughs> so, just so everybody knows, like these are four illustrations of apes. Um, you know, but mostly from a company called Board Ape Yacht Club, which has made tons of money convincing mostly very wealthy people that they should change their Twitter avatar to a simian of some kind. And, you know, one of the guys who owned a lot of these apes was like talent agencies have been reaching out to him been like, yo, you seem like really hip to whatever this NFT thing is. We want to work with you. Are your your apes
0: talented? Can we get some of your most talented (laughs) apes?
2: Well, now I think it's going to be a fun challenge to see whether they can turn these apes into talented apes. Right. So, you know. I haven't yet seen the end. Of course, this is like going to be a big reveal who the musicians will be who are going to be behind these apes, what the musical style will be. There's a lot of questions about the actual creative attached to this. Um, but this very much reminds me of, you know, a couple of years ago. Well, actually, there's, they're still out there. We had like virtual influencers, which were like AI. And created virtual avatars on Instagram and people would like they would model clothes for real brands, real um, real brands. So, you know, this is this to me is where the line between the crypto and what folks are calling the metaverse gets weird and blurry and profitable for some companies and highly confusing for most other people, which is here's a crypto concept. Here's a thing in which you can own the rights to like a piece of digital art. And then these very traditional major companies are coming in and saying, we want to do something interesting with that. We have no idea what the use case is,
0: but it seems chill. I feel like just musically, it's going to be really interesting because, because like we are not in the age of Blur and Oasis anymore. Like there, There's something no. about the, the age of Blur and Oasis where that kind of music lent itself to animated simians in a way that I feel like these days where you have like K-pop and hip-hop, like, doesn't.
2: K-pop, hip-hop, and T-Swift are the, the three genres of music. <laughs> I purely don't understand what a music
1: NFT is. Isn't how I... It, it, I it's an a N- great F-
0: question. And, and one what? of the interesting things about this... I mean, this is this is actually, and we are this is the lightning numbers round. is becoming very less light, lightning by the minute. But they, one of the fascinating things is that music has been very slow to get NFTed. So I do think that if I had to guess, the person I would say like would somehow wind up getting involved in an NFT music project would be someone like Grimes or Imogen Heap. Because she's been ah, into. Ah, Imogen Heap. Imogen Heap has been into NFTs yeah. for a long time. And I feel like she's going to try and get involved in this song. I hope she does because I love her. She's awesome.
2: Bjork did in 2017 have an album that came with its own tokens. It was her Utopia album. And when you bought it, you got an audio coin.
0: And what's happened to the value of the Bjork coins?
2: The latest number that I can find in that was earlier this year is that they were trading at around four pence and they were worth around fifteen pence at the time.
0: <laughs> so they they went down from fifteen p to four p
2: to four p. I'm,
0: I'm, I'm long Biot coins. I'm like ne- never mind Ethereum <laughs> and Bitcoin. I'm I'm just gonna like load up on Biot coins because she was clearly and um, you know she was always ahead of the game. She she was the first mover and like eventually the first movers will get rewarded so i think that's it for us this week unless you're a slate plus listener which you should be because we will talk on the record about off the record on background on background no comment we to talk all about like how to understand news articles when pr people insist on being on background the whole time that's coming up in slate plus but otherwise thanks for listening to this show on this very busy news week we, we will be back on Monday with Ed Lee talking about episode five of Succession <laughs> in a show that is produced by Shana Roth, who's amazing, who produced this too. Thank you very much.
2: <laughs> oh my God. <laughs>